I, I hear that uh, that the Essenes wore really bright, flashy clothes because they wanted to be seen. Ha uh-huh. ha um, No, undyed. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, shut up, right? And you're you're wrong. <laughs> Yeah, just undyed linen. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Please don't put that in the pot. Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 134. In this episode, we're talking about costuming and Jesus films with Dr. Katie Turner. Dr. Katie Turner is an independent scholar who completed her PhD at King's College London and has a forthcoming monograph entitled Costuming Christ with TNT Clark. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Brandon Hurlbert and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So Brandon, this was a delightful conversation with Dr. Katie Turner. It was so wonderful to um, hear a lot of just excellent gems about the way that costuming works uh, in in Jesus films, the sort of uh, subtle exegetical moves that are being made with each costuming choice and even casting choices as well that we get to towards the end of our conversation. What were some of the highlights and takeaways that you had from this conversation with Dr. Turner? Uh, Katie and I have been in a, a Bible and film club for the past year or so. So we've we've talked a lot about film and a lot about different films, but it's just been so fun just to ask her all the questions I've had for the past year and just be able to ask all of them in this in this uh, episode. One of the things that, you know, probably a bit different than other episodes in this series that kind of dealt more with kind of broad questions of Bible and film and, you know, the content of the stories and how it related to scripture. You know, I think Katie's research really deals with kind of the behind the scenes, the the kind of unrealized, the unconscious decisions on behalf of the filmmakers in how they stage a film and how, you know, what the characters wear, what does that actually communicate? Because all, all these things, all these minute decisions reflect broader kind of hermeneutical options for the filmmaker and us as you know uh, the audience members as you know film watchers we are you know exposed to so many of these options that we actually have a hard time figuring out which one we are supposed to pay attention to and so actually you know Kay's research and our conversation in this episode of slowing down thinking about what is actually communicated by the dress, the, the clothing choices, the color of the robes, um, how men and women are portrayed and what they wear. Do they go undergo a costume change? And what might that actually be communicating? And I think Teddy's research really brings out that what they might be communicating actually might not just be simply about a historical conversation or what people were really like in the first century, but how those costuming choices actually might reflect anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic, maybe even racist and Orientalist tropes and how they're affecting communities of color in the present. I think that is my main takeaway from, from this episode. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Katie Turner. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Turner. Thanks so much for having me. 
So tell us a little bit about your research. We're really excited to hear what you have to share in terms of how clothing impacts like the way we reflect someone's character and, and what, what is trying to be represented by these costuming choices in Jesus films and in uh, drama. Can you tell us a little bit about your work and the various things that you do in relation to clothing? Sure. Um, I'm going to start by defining our terms uh, before I jump in to answer your question. Um, so when we're talking about clothing, I talking about the actual garment items that a person in real life puts on their body every day, goes out into the world dressed. When I'm looking at what we see on film or on stage, that's costume. Um, which is different than clothing. With clothing, we are dressing ourselves. With costume, there are people involved, a creative team usually involving the director, screenwriter, costume designer, and often the actor themselves deciding how are we going to have the audience understand this character that we're presenting and they put together clothing items with that in mind. So it's, it's quite different from dressing ourselves. So yeah, so those, those are the two different terms. I am interested in clothing as part of the material culture of the Second Temple period and New Testament period. I think it's an under-considered part of that period's history. But clothing is incredibly important to our comprehension of any time, any place, any society, because it impacts many different levels of that society from um, local economy to, uh, to gender roles in society, to trade, and so trade route production and what's science and technological advancement are involved in clothing manufacture. But then we also have a lot of the personal, cultural, and religious details that are involved in what clothes we put on our bodies, how we arrange those clothes on our bodies, whether we incorporate other accessories with that, and how we then articulate our identities to the people that we are interacting with. So this wasn't something that was overlooked by people in the New Testament period and the Second Temple period. And we can see references to clothing and dress. They're not super common, but there are references in the New Testament. There's a really important bit that Paul makes clear that clothing and dress behavior have an impact on identity when he is instructing the Corinthians on head covering or no head covering while they're in prayer. It's free clothing and dress behavior is frequently referenced by Greco-Roman authors. They deeply understood how important the way we present ourselves to the world is and what can be read from that. Um, because we all exist in a society together, we all dress in a society together, um, we all understand how to read each other. We go out in the street every day, we meet somebody the way that they are dressed, how they have assembled their clothing on their body, what accessories they've included, are they tattooed, do they have piercings, all of that is part of dress behavior, have they dyed their hair, and we understand those things as sort of as a language, a communication of that person's identity and where they fit in the world. 
we intuit a lot of that. So people in the first century were intuiting a lot of that. But when we, as an audience, are watching something play out on screen or on stage, we are also doing that intuitive work for the costuming. So we're able to read characters really quickly. Are they poor? Are they rich? Are they really religious? Are they um, a badass? You know, do we have someone in lots of black leather and lots of tattoos? Are they maybe a mobster in a double breast suit with wide pinstripes? So there's all these sorts of things that are being communicated to us really quickly when we're an audience, how we should understand the character, where they fit in the narrative, how that narrative fits in a particular place at a particular time. Um, yeah, so th these are really important details, both to understanding any time period and understanding how a time period is represented. Yeah, on the New Testament side, uh, and especially keeping with Paul, as you brought up, it makes me think of that baptismal passage at the end of Galatians 3 about how, you know, there's no um, uh, Jew nor Greek, etc. And in that context, talks about those who've been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Yeah, there is a lot of metaphorical language of dress and dress behavior. And the reason that that works so well is because of the practical way that that worked in that society at that time. So you can then speak in metaphor and that metaphor is comprehensible. Yeah, thinking about Bible films, uh, you know, it would it would be very odd. It might be a really cool film, but it'd be really odd to see a mobster in pin. Like if you made Judas wear pinstripes, uh, a pinstripe suit, that would be everyone would would be like, that's wrong. But I think, you know, I think part of your, you know, the excellent part of your research is that that is no more wrong than and how some of the Bible films have portrayed ancient dress. It's just as weird and just as, uh, you know, the wrong clothing choice as making Judas wear a, a pinstripe suit uh, as it would be, you know, some of the ways he's been portrayed. I think if we made him wear a pinstripe suit, there would at least be something interesting going on yeah we'd be displacing the narrative and articulating something else through the clothing so you can see that in um jesus christ superstar they're really putting their theology forward with their costuming but that's present really in every jesus film we just don't think about it as as directly as we do in something like godspell or jesus christ superstar because it's really upfront. but yeah nobody has done it correct there's nothing historically accurate on screen. Yeah. How, in that regard, how, how interested are you in historical fidelity in, in terms of what Jesus films are doing uh, versus, you know, kind of how they're working with contemporary expectations or contemporary tropes? You know, I think, for example, of uh, the Pharisees, the Pharisees are typically in, in black dress. And there's an issue of historical accuracy there, as well as perhaps what movie goers are expecting in terms of, quote unquote, the villains, right? Uh, they tend to wear darker clothing and the the heroes tend to wear lighter clothing. These are tropes that go, you know, go back to Westerns with black hat, white hat, you know, that kind of thing. Um, could you speak into that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so thing number one is we should never, ever, ever expect any sort of historical accuracy from any film ever. I don't care what the marketing is selling you or telling you. History sells really well. 
So film director, directors know this, studios know this, everyone is aware of the fact that people are interested in the past and you can make money off of that interest. And that's not to say that a lot of research isn't put in to some films. Um, some have been really quite excellent in the historical research that they do for the sets, for casting, for costumes. But that is Lloyd Llewellyn Jones, um, he has called this the decor of history. And that's what it is. It hangs on in a film as it's really just decoration to give the audience a sense of the past. And so there are a number of other things going on to communicate that sense of the past. And one of the key things in that is audience expectations about whatever time period is being portrayed. So if we have something set in the medieval period, for example, we might see a lot of interiors of buildings in gray stone. We don't see a lot of color. Medieval period itself was very colorful. Interiors were always decorated. There were tons of tapestries to keep places warm, to muffle sound, lots of carpet. There would have been color everywhere. But we are used to seeing the past, how we have received the past, and we have received those buildings without that color in place because of the wear and tear of time. And that is how we first receive those things on screen in images and books. And so that is how we perceive that medieval period is supposed to be a lot of gray, a lot of stone. And if film directors were to set something accurately to really rebuild a medieval interior, they might have, they might trigger in the audience something that we could think of as an anti-authenticity effect. Where the audience is looking at something historically accurate, but it's so jarring to the perception of the period that they don't receive it as authentic. So that's thing number one that might cause divergence from any sort of accuracy. Thing number two is narrative, plot, character, all of those things, the, the key things of storytelling, those are, that's the number one driver. So clothing is used to move a story, set design is used to move a story, all cinematography is used to move a story. And if that means diverting from history in some sort of way to take that story forward, then that's what they're, they're gonna do that. So I'm interested in accuracy in so much as I'm interested in figuring out how we are perceiving the first century because we are so inundated with images of the New Testament period. It is absolutely impossible for any of us who exist in the West at all to close our eyes and imagine Jesus without being impacted by really a thousand years. People say 2000 years, but the most powerful imagery we're going about a thousand years back how that is shaping what we think about. When we then go to do historical research, what preconceptions are we bringing into our understanding of the past through the images that we've received? So that's sort of thing number one. Thing number two is what are we communicating to audiences with the costuming that we are seeing? Are we communicating harmful stereotyping. 
So looking at accuracy helps to underscore how much of what we're doing is wrong. Not to say that films should be doing it quote unquote right, but to say we are so wrong, we're so far away. And the distance away that we are is also really harmful. Yeah, I think I think that's really helpful. Um, I think within art and, you know, we are constantly trying to make people look like ourselves, um, try to make others into our own image, to use the biblical phrasing, maybe. And I think it, I think it's interesting that, yeah, the kind of the white Jesus or the European Jesus is generally what people kind of imagine. And even if we try, we have to try pretty hard as Westerners. And, and, and we don't think of, you know, the Christ in the Hagia Sophia, like that dude doesn't look like the Christ that we're, we're used to. And yet that's a very early attestation of what you know, people imagined Christ to be. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit just, you know, for a lot of our listeners who aren't uh, up to date on ancient textile uh, research and archaeology and things, can you just talk about the correlation? Because I, I find that if we can look at Bible films and go, okay, let's not use that for our historical research. You know, what's the correlation between Bible films and costuming and, you know, ancient art and is there some correlation or I know that your own research kind of deals with actual kind of textiles and material culture. So I wonder if you could let our listeners know what are the things that you're drawing upon to inform your more historical uh, basis of what uh, clothing was like uh, in the ancient world? Sure. Um, so we've got three sort of evidence categories. We've got actual archaeological finds, um, so material remains, items of jewelry, footwear, belts, all that kind of stuff. We have things written down in texts, and then we have artistic representation. So when we are talking specifically about Jewish people of the first century living in what we would say broadly is the Holy Land, so Judea, Galilee, Samaria, that surrounding area. We have a wealth, I mean, just an enormous quantity of evidence that would fall into that first category of material remains. And actually, really the finest collection of textiles from anywhere in the Greco-Roman world. So historians of Roman dress draw on this material because they understand its importance but historians of the New Testament don't look at it because they don't think about clothing. But we actually have thousands, thousands of textile remains, many, many thousands. Well, their, their loss is uh, your <laughs> research gain, so. <laughs> <laughs> then when we go to look at references in literature, so things that have been written down, we have a really kind of diverse array let's say. Um, so we have things written in the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible. And those references, they're not great for looking at the Second Temple period or the uh, New Testament period because they were written earlier and people change over time. And different, there's a lot of different cultural contexts going on. But we do have a couple provisions for dress, how Israelites are supposed to dress. So when we look at the material remains, we can start to ask questions, were people actually following these biblical prescriptions? And then you can have, you know, there's some interesting questions there. If they were, what does that tell us? If they weren't, what does that tell us? Um, we have references in the New Testament. Some of them are just sort of 
not necessarily interested in the practicalities of dress, but they mention dress. So we have a couple references to Jesus having seat seat on his garment or um, tassels on you know, fringe in the four corners of his garment. And those bits of his garment having healing powers. And so that tells us a bit there about how something about clothing is perceived of and were seat seat in general thought to have this kind of ability or was it Jesus himself who was adding that on? And um, we have references in the Mishnah. The Mishnah doesn't really talk about how people clothe themselves. They don't describe. They instead will dress will be part of a conversation about manufacture. Um, there's a couple of references like women in Judea should do this thing and women in Babylonia should do something else. And that tells us also that there are differences. So being Jewish did not mean that there was one uniform sense of dress behavior, no matter where you lived, that it was very contextually dependent. When we look at the material remains, what we find is that overwhelmingly they can form in almost every single way to what we are seeing in the broader Greco-Roman world. So that opens up a lot more evidence in those uh, literary references. We can start to look to Greek or Roman texts and what they were saying about dress and dress behavior. And we find a lot more description in those places. And it also opens up art. Um, artistic rep representation is a bit of a problem for um, clothing and dress historians of the Second Temple period because Jewish people believed that the prohibition against idolatry meant no representation of the human form at all. And so they didn't depict themselves. So if you want some really contemporaneous depictions, you are going to have to look at non-Jewish art. A point that I think is kind of important is that Jewish people did live in Egypt and they lived in Rome. They weren't all just located in the land of Israel. And in those places, they might very well have engaged in having portraiture done or representing the human form, but we just wouldn't know it now. So if we are looking at portraits from Alexandria, if we're looking at portraits from Pompeii or portraits from Rome, we don't necessarily know whether we're seeing a Jewish face or not, but it doesn't mean that there aren't Jewish faces included. And we are part of that, that sense that they dressed just like everybody else is Greek and Roman authors, Roman authors in particular, Roman moralists, they loved to condemn the odd appearance of others. So they really, really, really loved to pick apart and criticize how people in India were dressing, how Celtic people were dressing, um, how Ethiopian people were dressing, but they don't mention any visual difference for Jewish people. And it's not exactly like they were super fond of Jewish people. So I would imagine if there was some really obvious visual difference, we would see that in the text. In art references, when we want to see actual Jewish self-representation, we have to go to the third century Dura Europa synagogue, um, which is the interior was covered in murals. It was unfortunately destroyed by ISIS. Um, but lots of records were taken before that happened. And that is the earliest example of Jewish self-depiction that we have. And there, the images, there's sort of two different types of dress that we see in, there were a lot of panel frescoes representing different scenes from the Tanakh. And 
we have two different types of dress represented. We have Greco-Roman dress, which maps on really well from what the text seems to imply and from what all the material remains show. And we also have a Parthian Iranian type of dress. And that makes a little bit more sense when you think about Dio-Europus is on the edge of the Parthian Iranian empire, came into the Roman empire quite late and was a kind of way station for people going from more west in the Roman empire, east into other parts of the world. Yeah, so mostly what we get from all of that evidence is that Jewish people of the first century who lived in the Roman Empire dressed in a Greco-Roman manner. They were not visually different. So since we brought up uh, the representation of Jesus uh, a, a couple of times, I'm curious, you know, when you see like the kind of typical Jesus film, what, what you tend to see is this kind of, you know, beige um, a costume with a red sash or blue sash or purple sash. And some of that is appropriating like artistic tradition about how Jesus is represented. I'm curious if you could speak into that sort of um, choice to kind of uh, recycle that, that pattern. Yeah. So everything that we see on film has been informed by artistic tradition, everything. <laughs> so obviously filmmakers and costume designers are bringing their own sort of stuff to the plate. Some of them will claim in interviews that they did a bunch of historical research, but I can't imagine what they were possibly looking at other than other Christian art. So what we, the major thing that we are seeing in film is Orientalism. So Orientalism, I draw basically from Edward Said's book and his basic definition, but it's a way of seeing from um, a Western or Christian lens as they look East that homogenizes, distorts, and really others in a damaging way, many different Eastern, predominantly Islamic, but Jewish people in there as well, even Jewish people who lived in continental Europe who were perceived as Eastern outsiders. So they're lumped into that Orientalism. It's had, it kind of puts that all together, everything, all aspects of material culture, what those people are doing into this wonderful melange of what we end up with in Christian art. And that Orientalist display in art is used predominantly to demonstrate heathen identity, being like a Jew, being not Christian, whereas Jesus, and his followers and the Holy Family, Joseph, not quite to the same extent as Mary, are perceived as Christian. Important figures are kind of, we can call them proto-Christian. So Joseph Matthea and Nicodemus might fit in that proto-Christian. Um, figures from the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament would fit in that kind of proto-Christian. And they, they will sit somewhere in the middle. So when we look back, in art, what we find are the Jewish figures. And for a long time, Pontius Pilate was wrapped right up in that because it's about representing heathenness all together. Jews are heathens, and so is Pilate. Um, heavily orientalized. And Jesus and his mother Mary, not orientalized at all. They had their own artistic tradition that was informing how they were represented. And that artistic tradition had a lot to do with theological understandings of um, the nature of Christ. 
So we will see him barefoot, usually in a simple tunic, sometimes belted, sometimes not belted, formless. So this isn't something that is tight or body fitting at all. And this is a way of demonstrating his asceticism, his humility, and understood as um, sanctity. And so Mary also ends up with a similar sort of presentation in kind of formless tunics. She's often belted though, being a woman, and she also gets a bit of a nun-like presentation. So we see her in a, with a veil and often with a full cap and wimple, which is the bit that goes around the neck and up the sides of the face. Um, often white, if you can picture a nun. So Mary has that kind of appearance. And then we'll see images where Mary Magdalene in a kind of, you know, in a conversion narrative, she'll go from being depicted one way to then looking more like the Virgin Mary. So she, the Virgin Mary is the, the pinnacle of the Christian appearance. And so other women who are holy women will be represented like Mary, but not necessarily equal to. And Jesus functions the exact same way for male figures who are Christian. So he is the pinnacle of what it is to have a sanctified appearance. And if you look back in medieval art, his tunic looks an awful lot like what a number of different uh, holy men would be wearing in monasteries, monks, that sort of thing. Brown, gray, um, a paler sort of black, never quite black, but um, darker kind of colors, um, sometimes with a rope type belt. So there's a lot of monastic type appearance in how they're being presented. And the Jewish figures are being presented with whatever at the time the artist was painting best represented a carnal nature, a devious nature, a demonic nature, um, being obsessed with materialism, ostentation, anything that made them appear bound to the mortal world concerned with the 19th century when you start to get a different sort of Orientalism um, that's much more around what Said was writing about um, that is being impacted by two things. One is the Ottoman Empire's decline and the West coming um, as a um, more powerful empires in the West. And so they turned away from Orientalism of previous depictions, which was much more focused on an Ottoman sort of presentation, lots of big turbans. Um, and they turned towards what they saw were the humble, authentic, people of the Holy Land who were Arabic people or specifically Bedouin people. And that's then informing the depiction quite strongly, but it's also being subsumed into this idea of historical accuracy. So if Bedouin is historically accurate, then the Holy Family must also kind of start to have some of that. And so we get, we start to get a shift.
That is super fascinating. And just one more uh, thought on the representation of Jesus in terms of the costuming. You know, when he's crucified, he typically has a loincloth uh, about his waist. Um, this is true in art and, of course, in Jesus films. And, you know, I've, al I've always kind of taken that as sort of being a sort of modesty thing, you know, in terms of the films, you know, not wanting to have nudity in the film, but also a kind of, you know, like you mentioned, sanctity, this, this sort of like, okay, yes, he's being humiliated on the cross, but is it too much to sort of um, have him be completely nude I, i'm curious to, to hear your thoughts on crucifixion and and the the kind of spectacle of it in terms of you know nudity and the violence but also in terms of uh what else might be going on with the loincloth so for example we had dr mark Lindsay on to talk about post-shawah theology and one of the things that he suggested that i thought was super fascinating is that um actually what the loincloth is doing is uh causing us to to forget that jesus was circumcised that actually that that's part of the work that the loincloth does. And I wonder if that feeds into some of this non-orientalizing that you just described. Curious to hear your thoughts on that. Um, I had not considered that at all. It's an interesting suggestion. I would say, I don't know, without interrogating it further, my gut instinct is not to entirely agree because the circumcision of the infant Christ is a really common um, scene that's depicted in art. Um, so I don't know that I would have to think about whether that shifts in the 19th century, but if you look earlier, it's a, it's a scene you can find commonly painted in churches in illuminated Bibles, that kind of thing. There was, I, I think there's this, there's this thing that a lot of academics are really focused on demonstrating that Jesus was Jewish as a, a new thing that we're doing now. You know, we can scrub out anti-Semitism if we mention more and more often that Jesus, Jesus was a Jew, as if Christians hadn't considered that before. But they did consider that before. It was not just acknowledged, it was understood and that's evident in their art and in their drama the end town passion play which is an english uh 15th century passion play has a whole scene where jesus i mean it's the last supper scene but he's very explicit about it being passover and he even references uh when he invites his disciples to sit down and have the passover seder with him he references that they are commanded in Exodus to remember the event and to keep it holy. And you're seeing on, on a separate stage happening basically at the same time, the high priests and the Pharisee characters are conspiring to arrest Jesus. So while Jesus is saying, this is what we, it is Passover, it is right now Passover, and we should all be celebrating Passover, you then are seeing the Jewish characters not celebrating Passover, but instead conspiring against Christ. And so it's really important for that narrative, for that scene to play out is this understanding that Christianity is now the new Israel that, you know, they have the new covenant. This is supersessionism for supersessionism to really have a strength to it. Jesus is Jewish, you know, I don't know if that makes sense, but that, that's, yeah. so that's my initial thing with the loincloth. Um, on the medieval stage, whenever they depicted the crucifixion 
or any scene that would show Jesus's body, the actor would be in a nude colored leather bodysuit, um, which would be painted with blood and stuff on it. So there was a definite thing about not actually showing the body. So the question about the loincloth is a really interesting question and I wish I had thought more about it, but I think there really is just a covering up because images of him as an infant show his whole body. <laughs> There's no, once he's a grown man though, it's different. Um, thinking about, you know, kind of the material culture that in your research, I, I just want to know, because I, I think most people just don't know how cool material culture can be from the ancient world. What is the coolest thing that you came across in your research? So my very favorite item of material culture is a small section of wool textile. It's a Czech textile. Um, so it looks sort of like what we might call plaid. And it was discovered in Masada. Uh, it's Roman era textile among many thousands of other textile fragments from Masada. But that textile came from Britain. What? <laughs> yeah. So somebody picked it up, a Roman soldier perhaps in Britain. I mean, Rome got up here. Sorry, I'm in yeah. London. So. <laughs> and it went all the way to Masada. That's wild. Yeah. And it's completely different looking than anything else. It looks foreign because it doesn't have the appearance of um, textiles that were being made and worn in the Eastern Mediterranean. Yeah, I think I think we tend to forget just one how big the Roman Empire was and how you know yeah. you know we we tend to think like it's a, it's inconvenient to you know travel a few hours, especially here in England, um, in LA where I'm from. That's like completely normal. It's like a daily commute, but you know, we tend to think like, if it's difficult for us, how much more difficult would it have been for the, in the ancient world, which is in some certain, you know, in some sense is very true. But then I think your example points out like, yeah, but Rome got around uh, and yeah, Roman soldiers <laughs> got around and they, you know, you know, I, I'm up here in the north of England and we have Hadrian's Wall and, you know, in just a little bit south, we have uh, the city of York, which is where Constantine declared himself emperor. And that's like a wild thing to think about um, that we don't tend to think of England as something that was controlled by Rome at some point. And there's obviously many other examples. Yep. So, yeah, I just I I like the evidence of how far something traveled. I like that it looks I look at that bit of textile. It looks British to me. It's like it just does. It's this small check. It's the colors it's the fact that it's the sort of wool and that's just cool it looks like it, there, there'd be some tea being served alongside it or something yeah but in all of your research did you ever find a certain majestic shoe no <laughs> Well, no, that, Brian. <laughs> yeah, so that's my that's my uh, awkward segue into um, the life of Brian. I know you have this great essay in that life of Brian collection of essays edited by Joan Taylor. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Maybe set the scene a little bit, this moment in life of Brian to tell us about, you know, kind of how you incorporate some of your interesting research uh, into kind of interpreting that portion of the of the film. Yeah, so I, I mean, 
there's a scene in the film where everybody's sort of crowds of people are trying to figure out how they can understand different apocalyptic or messianic movements. Some people thinking Brian is the Messiah and seeing symbolism in a gourd. Brian is trying to run away from the crowd. He leaves a shoe behind like Cinderella. And so you have some people saying the gourd is the sign and then the shoe is picked up. And and I think it's John Cleese who calls out and the shoe is the sign. And the movement, this crowd of people that's been chasing Brian right then and there splits and you have two different movements. One that sees the gourd as a sign and one that sees the shoe as a sign. Um, And it's a hilarious nod to the way things can fissure so quickly. And an astute way of communicating the diversity in thought for a century. That essay in that volume is from a conference that Joan organized, and I was in second year of my PhD, third year. I did it part-time, so it took a while. And she actually got Terry Jones and John Cleese to attend the conference, so it was really enjoyable. And um, I was invited to present and have a paper in that volume alongside amazing, amazing people. So I feel very privileged. And now I look back at that chapter and I think there are some things I would fix. (laughs) But overall, I stand by it. Brian is probably the most accurate in terms of costuming Jesus film that you're going to get. And it's really not accurate. But they do have some lovely little moments in it that you can see that there's some actual care, some research went into it. And we can also see how costume is being used for characterization more easily in Brian, even though it's being used that way in every Jesus film. But because Brian differs from the standard Jesus film, you can see how that's happening a bit more easily. So the uh, People's Front of Judea, they dress all in black. Black was not a common color in the first century for two reasons. First of all, a nice pure black like we are used to today, um, they just didn't have the technology to produce that. It just didn't exist. But dark clothing that they would refer to as black was reserved for periods of mourning or if you were in trouble, if you were awaiting trial or appearing for a tribunal of some sort, like if you were in trouble, then you had to show proper humility and wear dark clothing. So it was a way of demonstrating shame. It's difficult. Color terms in uh, Greek and Latin and um, biblical Hebrew are really limited compared to the color words that we have today. So we might see a Roman author refer to something as red or something as purple, and that can mean so many different things. And it's really hard to drill down and to say. So if they say black, what do they mean by black? Um, Really dark brown, gray, darker colors, but not pure black. So black, like we are used to seeing, say, priest's garment or I mean any man has a nice black suit like a black tux or plain black suit that you would wear to a funeral or to a wedding or any sort of occasion where you need to look nice that pure black color 
that comes in the 15th, 16th century, becomes a really big deal, which is a big part of why the Puritans adopt pure black. It's like they finally figured out how to make that pure color and to have it um, last, not just wash right out of the textile. So before then we don't have pure black, but we see it in Jesus films all the time. But in Brian, it, it's just this group. It's the People's Front of Judea. And they have organized themselves as a rebel separatist group. So putting them all in black actually makes a lot of sense for communicating what they're about and what they're doing. And then when you think about it in the context of like the 1970s, when we also had movements like the Black Panthers who were referencing their own racial identity, but also how they were dressing and appearing before people as a, a, a political movement with a, a strict ideology. Um, it makes sense for a costume designer at the same time to put this like rebel separatist group in black. And you'll notice if you watch the film, Brian joins the People's Friend to Judea, but he never dresses in black because he's not really in it. He just had a big crush on Judith. So he was like tagging along. But that, the fact that this costume never changes, he never adopts the uniform that the rest of them have, it really tells you that he's not committed. So last week we had Siobhan Jolie on, on the podcast and uh, talking about Mary Magdalene. And there's one particular representation of Mary Magdalene in terms of clothing that I think is quite interesting, which is the 2003 Gospel of John film with uh, Henry Ian Cusick playing Jesus. He's the guy who plays Desmond in Lost, uh, for those of you who don't uh, recognize that name. And, you know, it's one of those Jesus films that's basically like, here's, you know, a straight gospel. We're more or less going to follow a translation, and that's going to be sort of the script, if you will. Uh, but they make a lot of in interpretive decisions that go beyond the text. Uh, and one classic example that relates to this issue of costuming is their introduction of Mary Magdalene quite early in, in John 6, in that area of the Gospel of John, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, unprecedented, there's this woman in a red dress who's following Jesus. And later we realize that this is Mary Magdalene. Uh, but I'm just curious, do you have some thoughts about this particular character yeah, and this representation? So yeah. Um, so first of all, it's an excellent example of how, how important it is to pay attention to costume, because the costume is doing so much exegetical work <laughs> um, in that movie as it does in every Jesus film, but it's just super apparent there. Um, so Mary Magdalene has historically been presented in red and I'm sure um, that Siobhan has spoken about this. Um, red hair, red clothing, but so has the disciple John, the beloved disciple. And that's because red is the color of love and love can be two types of love. It can be pure love as is, as we would see Jesus to John, the beloved disciple, or it can be lustful sexual desire love as Mary Magdalene seen as the redeemed prostitute would be first in red to signify her sexual impropriety, her immorality in that regard, but then she remains in red or with red hair, also with that dualness of having this close relationship to Jesus. So what we get in a lot of Christian drama way back when are exciting scenes of Mary Magdalene's conversion. 
where she is first a prostitute and then she has a big costume change to demonstrate her conversion. And she is said to appear like Mary. So often that means, or they'll say as a chaste woman. And so we see her veiled mimicking the Virgin Mary's appearance. So the fact that in this movie, in the gospel of John, we first see her and she is in red and she's got coined headdress and lots of jewelry and accessories. She's heavily orientalized. And then the next time we kind of see her, she starts to follow Jesus around and we see her come up in a different, a couple different places when he's teaching. And the next time you see her, she's lost one bit of her accessory. And then the next time she's lost a bit more of her accessories until we get to her and she's got her hair down and she doesn't have her coined headdress on anymore. And she's just got the red garment, but we can see this to the conversion the wonderful costume change conversion that is such a historic part of Mary Magdalene's presentation is happening in this movie. And then we eventually see her and she's in black. She's veiled. She's got black garments on. She's much more covered up. Her body is not as visible. But the black, there's a layer, like a red layer underneath. So you get a bit of red trim under the black. And you also see the Virgin Mary and she's also in black veiled way covered up. So this movie is importing a lot of Christian artistic tradition and exegetical tradition about Mary Magdalene's identity into a movie that is also purporting to be just a straight reading of the Gospel of John. So we get a conversion of Mary Magdalene scene, which is not present in that gospel in the film anyway, through costume. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that kind of film exegesis, how much of that is clever and like interesting and how much of that, because not everyone can pick up on these cues and, you know, they're not researching, you know, at your level, you know, how much of that actually, that presentation actually damages uh, either one's reading of the gospel or, you know, in certain terms, you know, one's view of, women of Mary, of, um, of Jews um, today and in the first century. Yeah, I would say um, that in that case, in the Gospel of John, they definitely knew what they were doing. It was so, it's so intentional. But we see this sort of conversion of Mary Magdalene through costume in so many Jesus films. I challenge all of our listeners to go and watch a Jesus film and spot Mary Magdalene's costume change. Um, it's just so pervasive. It might not be as apparent as in the 2003 Gospel of John, um, but she will. Uh, Mary will go from a saturated red garment to a muted red garment. She'll have lots of makeup on to not so much makeup on, jewelry to not jewelry, flowing loose hair to some sort of veiled covering. It's a really, really common trope. And we see this in lots of other ways, Christian artistic tradition being replicated. So putting um, the priests and the Pharisees, who were two separate groups, to, there might have been some Pharisees who were part of the temple priesthood, but the temple priesthood were not all Pharisees. But there is no distinction made in costuming. They are costumed exactly the same. And so they are grouped together as the same group. They're just smushed. There's just one. It's one thing. Priests and Pharisees. And they're in black. Um, and you were entirely right to say that this relates to Westerns. It 
relates to Westerns um, with the good guys in white and the bad guys in black. We see it again in Star Wars, really reaffirms that um, Star Wars is just a Western in space. But it's earlier than that. Um, it started in on the Victorian stage um, in Victorian melodrama, since we get it in early silent films. So if you go and watch a really early silent film of Jesus, Judas will also be in black and he often has black facial hair and he sometimes will twist his little beard like a snidely whiplash bad guy character. And so you need to look beyond the costume as well. So look for really dark hair, dark facial features, beards. Um, the, the Jews are often old men. So the ageness of them, the maleness of them, whereas Christian figures are younger. We get women who are part of that. We don't really see a lot of Jewish, Jewish women. Obviously they're all Jews. But costuming is creating this Christian Jewish divide, really right. solidifying the divide. I was going to say, is, is the ageism kind of trying to communicate that, like, that Judaism or the Jews are kind of the old way of I, doing things? And, I think and there's some of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How often do people like actually change clothes in the ancient world? Like, do they have? Like the thinking about costume changes, like, is that even remotely possible? Or people are like, why would we have more than one? I don't know. I actually don't know. You don't have to answer. That's not for the bottom. Um, yeah. So uh, in antiquity, there were certain sorts of appearances associated with certain groups. So like if you joined, so if you were part of the Essene community, um, you did have a particular mode of dress as like, so if you weren't part of that community, then joined that community, then there would be a, a change in your clothing. And um, there were certain rules around what different people could wear at different times. So if you move from being an enslaved person to being a freed man, then you were given new permissions for what you could wear. Um, if you were a Roman citizen, you were permitted to wear the toga, whereas if you weren't a Roman citizen, you were not permitted to wear the toga. So interesting, there, yeah. So if there's like a change in some sort of circumstance in your life, a uh, clothing change might accompany that. But the average individual isn't gonna have that, like clothing is time consuming to make and it's expensive. Yeah. I think what your research really is driving at is that all of these costume choices that Jesus films and this film in general makes, all of them reflect really intentional reading strategies of the filmmaker and that those decisions um those kind of exegetical uh and historic traditions or the the historic traditions that they're, they're drawing upon really actually affects our own understanding of not just the film but also the text and and the bible and, the, and these stories and i just wanted to know you know because we we get a wide range of listeners and i just want to assume I just I'll, I'll assume that you know a Steven Spielberg or a a, a great uh, director, maybe uh, the next great director, is probably listening to this right now. And if you had this one thing to say to them, one word of caution or advice that you would give these next up and coming directors for the next Bible film that they want to make, what what would you want to say to them? I would say scrap everything that's been done previously. Everything. Start completely and totally fresh. 
Um, Jesus Christ Superstar does a whole 70s hippie-ish thing and still replicates a lot of the problematic stuff. The priests are still in black. They still wear big oriental inspired, they're turban inspired hats. Um, no turbans in the first century. So orientalism isn't good. Really neat. It's, it's damaging to Jewish people. It's damaging to Muslim people. I can't prove, but I have a sort of sense that as we have shifted in a post 9-11 world from anti-Semitism being sort of the number one vilify, you know, Jews being the, the, the villain du jour to Muslim people, particular, you know, associated with terrorism and all of that. When we see, when we see representations of a desert landscape, okay, it wasn't a desert, people, not a dry, sandy desert. This was the land of milk and honey. There was a lot of agriculture. The desert thing, Orientalism. But when we see a desert landscape with violent people behaving violently, anti-Jesus in turbans, we aren't just damaging Jews and Judaism and perpetuating anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. We are being hugely Islamophobic in a really problematic, troubling kind of way. Yeah, so scrap it all. If you wanna go first century, actually Greco-Roman, give it a try. If you wanna do in the future, in space, do that. Just be better. Don't do what we've been doing. Do better, yeah. Well, Dr. Turner, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a, an excellent conversation. I just loved all, all these little nuances uh, that you've brought out from thinking more critically about costuming uh, in particular, and just uh, really appreciate all of your insights. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I have really enjoyed it. I've listened to this a few times before, and I always enjoy the episodes you guys do. They're always thoughtful. Yeah. So thanks. Thank you.